Talking History on News Talk. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the life and legacy of the greatest Jewish philosopher and legal scholar of the medieval period, Maimonides. And we'll be finding out about why he is being called one of the most influential minds in all of human history. We'd love you to join our discussion. Just send us a text on 53106. Text costs 30 cents. Or you can email us at talkinghistory at newstalk.com. Last week, we found out how colonialism, slavery and war transformed medicine. We heard about the Celtic myths that shaped the way we think and we investigated the death of the most notorious informer of the 19th century. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's debate though is on Maimonides. Born in Muslim rule Spain in 1138, Moses Maimonides had a career as a physician serving the Sultan of Egypt, as a philosopher and as a scientist, and his writings influenced later generations of Christians, Muslim and Jewish thinkers. On top of that, his monumental compendium of Jewish law became the basis of later Jewish legal codes and confirmed his reputation as one of the greatest lawgivers in history. Maimonides died in Cairo in the year 1204, and in tonight's show we want to assess his life and his legacy. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor Mark Shapiro is Weinberg Chair in Judaic Studies at the University of Scranton and is the author of Studies in Maimonides and His Interpreters. Professor George Yaakov uh, Kohler uh, teaches modern Jewish philosophy at bar University in Israel and his books include Reading Maimonides' Philosophy in 19th Century Germany, The Guide to Religious Form. Professor David Beale is Emanuel Ringelbaum, Prof- Distinguished Professor of Jewish History at the University of California, Davis, and is the author of Not in the Heavens, The Tradition of of Jewish secular thought. Professor Robert Eisen is Professor of Religion and Judaic Studies at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. His most recent book is Judaism and Violence, a a historical analysis with insights from social psychology. And I also learned he's a talented singer-songwriter. And uh, you can find out more about us looking up Robert Eisen and you'll be able to hear some of his work. Well, you're all very welcome. And later in the show, I'll be talking to Professor Sarah Stramsa, who is Professor Emerita of Arab studies at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and the author of Maimonides in His World, Portrait of a Mediterranean Thinker, and Dr. Moshe Halbertal, Professor of Jewish Thought and Philosophy at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and also Groot's Professor of Law at NYU. And his books include Maimonides' Life and Thought. Well, uh, an incredibly distinguished panel of experts. And Mark, I might begin with you and I might begin with the present day and ask where do we see Maimonides' influence today in society, in the world that we live? And is it possible to identify uh, the influences of Maimonides? Well, certainly if you're speaking about uh, the Jewish world, uh, Maimonides remains very important. Uh, Anyone who studies uh, Jewish law or Talmud or religious uh, texts is consistently uh, turning back to Maimonides. He also had a great influence on uh, not just Jewish thinkers, but if you're speaking contemporary times, I would say in particular Jewish thinkers, on issues uh, in medieval times, you you might turn them as uh, faith and reason, but in more modern times, think of them in terms of science 
and religion. So, for instance, uh, you have uh, the Bible will tell you that the world, if you count back, uh, you probably can get to around 6,000 years. And yet science will tell you that the world could be billions of years old. So already in medieval times, Maimonides set out a path to how to deal with such contradictions. Uh, Sometimes you have to reinterpret uh, the texts of Scripture. Other times you have to go back and look at uh, the scientific texts. So this model was showing you that you don't need to choose between religion and science uh, for, I guess you would call them enlightened modern Jews, uh, remains a a valid model and something that's inspirational and how to deal with uh, apparent challenges to faith uh, by modern uh, scientific knowledge. And Mark, I think in the present day, we're used to our geniuses being geniuses in one specific area. And back in the medieval and early modern period, I think it was probably more normal to have people who had such incredible range and versatility and uh, and talent in so many different areas, people like Isaac Newton and so on. But Maimonides does stand out, though, as someone who had such an extraordinary range. We see it in medicine and philosophy and science and in lawmaking and law giving in it's it's incredible to see such a, a a versatile range yes it is and that's why he's often uh, referred to as uh, one of the greatest minds in history uh uh, I mean, when you look back, though, I think we need to be clear of where he really stood out in terms of medicine, although in his day, he certainly was considered significant. It's not like anyone today is turning to him for medicine. And there were lots of great uh, doctors uh, in medieval times. I think you really need to look to both uh, his philosophical writings as well as his legal writings. And depending on your outlook, some will give pride of place to the philosophical work, see that as his real genius, and others will see his legal writings as his great genius and uh, the fact that he more than anyone else of his time was able to really uh, bring these two together is what is the reason why a thousand years later we're talking about him today. George, I thought when I started researching the story of uh, Maimonides, I thought that perhaps the Moses name was some kind of honorary uh, name that he had been given, given that he was a a lawgiver and following in the footsteps of the original great Moses. But it's 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 perhaps an interesting coincidence that it was part of the name, and and he was also to follow in the footsteps of uh, making such a, a significant contribution as a as a giver of laws. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, Moses was a very common Jewish name, and but you have this famous saying that there was no Moses from Moses to Moses, and everybody is fighting in the Jewish world which Moses is meant here, the original biblical or Moses Maimonides or Moses Mendelssohn, you know, the famous Moses in the modern era that also you know was very much influenced by Moses Maimonides. But I think you know this is just the name his father gave him. Maybe he wanted to give him to be as important as the biblical Moses, but as it's you know, I, I, very unlikely. Actually, I just, I just wanted to say something about um, uh, another influence, another legacy. In addition to what uh, what Mark said, is that in in Israel, there's also you know a great political meaning to this day. Just just imagine that you know we have um, more than 12 percent population here that is only studying the Torah all the, all day long from morning till evening. Actually, more or less supported by social welfare from the you know Israeli state, and there's a very clear ruling in. Maimonides' great legal code that you have mentioned several times that this is exactly, this is forbidden by Jewish law. You're not supposed to 
um, uh, learn Torah, learn uh, Jewish religious teachings on account of your community. You, have, you can only do this if you um, support yourself. Uh, this is only one example of, you know, how Maimonides is not a medieval scholastical thinker, but it's he's living among the people here here in Israel, and it's, it has has a great political, you know, almost everyday meaning. And George, that, no, the yeah. fascinating. And George, I, I wonder if you were to mention the name Maimonides uh, to uh, to Jewish people in Israel, would the name be instantly familiar? Would people uh, be aware of Maimonides <laughs> and his writings and his works? Absolutely, even much more than that. I, I remember ten years ago, a big Maimonides conference in Israel, and a and a German colleague sitting next to me, and he told me, you know, look, you know, how is that possible that president of the state of Israel, Shimon Peres at the time, came to uh, say some words of greeting at the beginning of the conference. How is that possible that the president comes to, to a you know, conference on, on a medieval thinker, actually a scholastic thinker, you know, and I told him, you know, this is, this is exactly the thing, you know, everybody knows him, everybody knows him, and, and you know, for all even contemporary debates in Israel, for example, is Judaism a universal religion or is it more a tribal religion? You know, how does Judaism relate to others, to the other, in, in fact? Um, all these things, if you can, you know, just enlist Maimonides on your side, his authority on your side, you still have a great achievement in your, in your talking points, you know. This is still uh, something that is it's it's unimaginable maybe outside of Israel or outside of the Jewish world, but this is exactly the fact that not only the people know the name, they know actually really the writings and the legal uh, decisions and all this. At least uh, um, religious Jews, but but, uh, also to a greater extent secular Jews. Robert, there's also a very important contribution to philosophy, and I wonder what is the significance of Maimonides when we talk about uh, the world of philosophy and and his influence there? Well, certainly in the Jewish world, uh, his influence is immense. Um, he was really the first great Jewish thinker um, to bring together Greek philosophy which you have to understand was kind of the standard wisdom of the time in the Middle Ages. He, it's, you know, reading Greek philosophy was kind of like learning, you know, like learning Einstein. Or you know, this was the common wisdom about, you know, every, every imaginable subject, not just philosophy. He was the first one to take Greek philosophy and uh, bring it together um, with Judaism. Uh, let me correct, correct myself. The first major thinker to do that, and because of his stature. It meant it, it really changed the course of Jewish intellectual history because Jews now saw the study of Greek philosophy and its interpreters in the Muslim world, the study of, of non-Jewish thinkers, as uh, as important, um, and and that there was a need to harmonize uh, the world of reason that they that they represented, as Mark referred to, um, and the world of of, of Jewish texts. Um, so he had an immense influence in the in the medieval period, and then because of his stature, also in the modern period, Jews keep coming back to him um, in order to in order to to, to probe his thinking. Um, He also had an influence on the Christian world because uh, Thomas Aquinas, the great uh, scholastic uh, Catholic philosopher um, of the 1200s, lived just after Maimonides, read Maimonides in translation and uh, cites him as, you know, Rabbi Moses. And so the Christian world was introduced to him and... uh, and and and, uh, and and was influenced by him. One more thing that I might 
point out that will throw a monkey wrench into all of this is that Maimonides' philosophical views are extremely um, mysterious because uh, he speaks in a deliberately esoteric language that can be interpreted in many different ways. Um, and that has also made him a source of fascination. Who is the real Maimonides? This is really the question that a lot of thinkers have asked in the medieval and modern period. It led to all kinds of controversy. So perhaps that's almost a, a, a benefit for a philosopher if there is going to be a certain amount of ambiguity or uh, it allows multiple readings like for Socrates. Yes, but it can also get you into a lot of trouble um, because... Um, the innuendos that Maimonides makes has convinced many interpreters that he was really kind of a heretic in disguise. You know, in other words, he he doubted some of the, this, the you know the sacred beliefs uh, the traditional Jews um, held dear for for centuries. That's one way of reading him. And as a result, at the end of his lifetime, and then after his lifetime, the Jewish world was consumed in controversy over who the real Maimonides was. So it can be a double-edged sword. That's very interesting because Louise has texted in on 53106 to ask how much of a traditionalist was he? But Robert, from what you're saying, he wasn't a traditionalist or certainly he was he, he was in a, in a way challenging a lot of the, the traditional order. Yes. Um, and, you know, to, to give a full answer to that uh, is difficult here, but it, it all revolved around the extent to which God was a personal being who was involved in the world. Um, and uh, versus a god who is kind of more impersonal, kind of like you might say, like a computer program that runs the universe. Um, you have both. You can read Maimonides in both ways. Sometimes he sounds very much like a traditionalist, the personal god who speaks through prophets and um, and uh, rewards and punishes and performs miracles. But then at times there are innuendos in his writings that uh, the real God is actually not a God who does this, and that that religion, the traditional religion, is just to placate the masses, to give them, to make them worried enough, you, you know, that God was going to punish them so that they would, you know, they would, they would stay in line. Uh, but that the real Maimonides was really somebody who, you know, who believed, uh, who didn't really, didn't really believe in a God who was involved in the world in a personal way. That's the nub of the, of the controversy. For, it's been going on for hundreds of years and is still not settled. So to, the, to answer the question, I'm not sure I want to. It depends how you read them. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, uh, David, I might ask you a, a question that's come in from Emma, again on 53106. Emma wants to know, why is Maimonides' account of creation so debated? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, I, I actually want to start with a contemporary observation unrelated to your question, and then I'll come to the question. <clears throat> I think as we see millions of Ukrainian refugees pouring over the border. We need to remember that Maimonides was a refugee from Al-Andalus. Um, he fled uh, some kind of religious persecution, um, went to Fez and later to Cairo. Um, so just as a biographical matter, I think it's uh, there's something contemporary there. <clears throat> uh, so Maimonides uh, tried to reconcile um, Aristotle's idea that the world is eternal uh, with the biblical idea that uh, God created the world in in six days. Um, <clears throat> and ultimately, he arrived at a, a kind of an impasse, and um, he was not able to say definitively 
that Aristotle was wrong. Aristotle, of course, as we've already heard, was uh, such a major figure by the time Maimonides uh, lived that um, the intellectual world recognized him as uh, as the definitive voice. Um, and so Maimonides had a problem there because Aristotle's view of the world uh, was the diametric opposite of the biblical view. Uh, and he found that very difficult to harmonize. So he said it really was, in the end, a matter of belief that the world was created in um, uh, in just a week. And David, there's elements of the biography. I think it's very powerful what you say, reminding us of of what's happening in in, in Ukraine and uh, and 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 the, the the Maimonides's own biography. There's elements of the biography that kind of confuse me, the way he ends up uh, working for the, the Sultan in Egypt, the way he I think he seems to be working for him as a, as a doctor. That It seems that there's these different layers to his career, but I, I, I find it kind of unusual that he's there working uh, as the, as, you know it, it, there's elements that don't really seem to connect easily, that he's doing all these remarkable things, but then he's doing kind of some quite prosaic jobs even if they're for the most powerful person in the country. Well, that was, of course, actually a role that Jewish doctors played throughout the Middle Ages, that is, as physicians to to monarchs and rulers. Um, I I mean, I think that we've already heard, uh, you know, about Maimonides' very different um, areas of expertise, and one was uh, medicine. Um, And he, uh, but serving in that role obviously gave him a certain kind of political influence. Uh, But he was also the... um, uh, dominant uh, legal figure of that community in Fustad in um, uh, in Cairo. Um, he uh, so he had a public role, uh, but he also had uh, many private um, enterprises. Uh, the most significant being the Guide of the Perplexed. Um, uh, we've already heard the views in the Guide of the Perplexed is um, very trans- transcendent and. Um, uh, transcendental notion of God, that God is so transcendent that we can't say anything about him um, using human language. All we can say about him is what he is not. Now, that's a book he wrote for, according to the introduction to one student. Um, uh, You know, the question that uh, has already been discussed, I think, by Robert, uh, uh, you know, who is the real Maimonides? Was he a... um, was he a heretic? I don't think Maimonides was a heretic, but I think that he, uh, in his own private world, that is the world of, of philosophy that he shared with only a very small circle, he engaged in all kinds of speculations that he never would have brought into his political role as a leader of the community. And he viewed um, the biblical commandments as uh, a kind of uh, political state um, and that the, the role of the legal authority, which he was, uh, was to govern his community. So there are these different roles, philosopher, politician, um, or legal, legal authority and, um, uh, position, all of these, uh, this kind of Renaissance man before the Renaissance, uh, 
this was uh, one of the things that makes him such an extraordinary figure. And Mark, is there a sense that his his work in one area is then uh, f- feeding into and influencing his work in another area and that his own background is, is shaping the worldview as well? The fact that he has these insights into the Islamic world, into the Jewish world, and he's able to combine religious law and philosophy when he's creating these codes of laws and uh, that everything he does helps direct and guide the other works? Uh, Certainly. And in fact, uh, let me just comment regarding to what you ask, uh, getting back to the last question, because I think it's also relevant to what you're asking now. I think uh, in your struggle to understand what he's doing as a doctor, you said some prosaic role. You're wondering perhaps why isn't he a rabbi, leader of a community? Well, uh, he was a leader of a community, but he wasn't practicing as a rabbi. We already heard from George because he didn't believe that that's uh, appropriate to take money. So therefore, you need to earn a living. And uh, his job was the doctor. And everything he did uh, as a legalist, as a philosopher, you can really see his life through what he did. And uh, and that's that's also the issue that Robert mentioned. Uh, are we dealing with someone who wishes to be an ivory tower philosopher and is just forced down to ground, as it were, to serve as a rabbi and um, guide the masses? Or is his biography really s- symbolic of something great much deeper, that he is someone who is a leader and immersed in the people, not just an ivory tower philosopher? We had many ivory tower philosophers, but one who is very much a rabbi, very one who takes very seriously Jewish law and uh, the simple things in life, I guess you could say. Uh, and this this struggle between uh, being an ivory tower philosopher and being one of the people, I think you see it through his works. And uh, there is no clear uh, insight into where his heart uh, is, I think. Uh, you have disputes on this matter. And what about the way he brings together religious law and philosophy when he's creating the code of laws? What he, The way he creates these codes of laws, it seems to be... It seems to be such a monumental achievement and it seems to to reshape so much in the world that he lives in. Yes, and it's quite uh, unusual. You wouldn't expect a code of law to have that sort of material. Not only does it have it, it begins with it. And uh, and the point is that uh, from his perspective, in order to be a complete Jew, to be a complete human being uh, – You need to understand philosophy. That is, uh, you need to be connected to God. You need to love God. That's actually written in the Bible. You should love God. And the only way to do that is an intellectual God, intellectual love. We are called to serve God, he says, through our intellect. So uh, to be a proper Jew, to be a proper human, uh, it is not just about behavior. It's our most exalted feature is our intellect. And therefore, although you find this, of course, in the guide, even in his code of Jewish law, right at the beginning, he tells you what the important philosophical truths are and that before you move on to other matters, you need to understand basic things about philosophical truth. And that is uh, very different than a typical code of law, which is only about behavior. George, when we look at the belief system then and the structure that he's putting on the Jewish belief system, how does he manage to achieve that? Because as as we're hearing, it is quite an exceptional part of his legacy. 
Absolutely right. I mean, I think the secret of his legacy and of his uh, ongoing importance is exactly this, this absolutely unique combination of being a strict legalist, and he's really a strict legalist, and a radical philosopher. I mean, this is in the same person. So you have, until the 18th century, you have rabbis saying that couldn't be the same author of the two books of the Legal Codex and the Guide of the Book Rex, which is philosophical work. You know, people really doubt that the same person has written those books, but we know he does. And so, you know, the legal codex is used until today, which is why also the heretical philosopher could, could not be excommunicated. So, and, and it's also the other way around. No one could claim that he was really only an Aristotelian school philosopher just pretending to be a rabbi because, you know, nobody would devote like 10 years of his life to just writing a whole codex, which he did, right? So, so this, this, you know, um, combination of the two things is, is, what you don't have, I, I believe, in, in no other religion, there's no other figure. I mean, Thomas Aquinas is a great philosopher, but he's not really heretical in his views. Uh, so that's why he's the same. And, and the same you have with Ibn Rushd, for example, in Islam. He's a great philosopher, but he was not a rabbi, not a legalist. And so he was excommunicated, at least for a while. So Maimonides has this, these both things in, in in, in, in combination, in, in, in the same figure, and this is what makes him, you know, like, really so um, important until this day, I guess. Robert, he has some very interesting things to say about the body and the soul and uh, seems to divide up the soul and uh, his his views on on these two parts of the, of the person, I think that's quite innovative as well. Well, uh, you've given me a wonderful opportunity to show you just how just how ambiguous he can be and and why he is so interesting. Uh, you're certainly correct that uh, you know he sees that the, the soul is being divided into to several parts. They're the lower parts of the soul, but the the essence of the soul, the most important part of the soul, is the intellect. And the whole goal that he felt uh, Jews and and non-Jews should should um, should strive for is to perfect the intellect because the intellect is the essence of the human being. But the question is, you know, you know where does that get you? And um, what he, what he, the, the innuendo again in his thinking, a lot of it is innuendo, is, is that by cultivating the intellect, uh, you achieve immortality because the only thing that really survives is not the body. The body decomposes, but it's the ideas that you have. And therefore, you have to perfect the mind and perfect your ideas so that you can achieve immortality. But that raises all kinds of interesting questions. Does that mean that somebody who's not a philosopher will not achieve immortality? And also, if you achieve immortality, what kind of immortality is it? Do you survive as you? Will I survive as, as, as Rob in the, in the afterlife? Or will my intellect kind of join the great intellect in the sky, namely God? And will I lose my individuality as a result? These are things that he doesn't really clarify and again, it depends how you how you read him. Uh, he's ambiguous enough that you can take him in one way or the other. 
Very good. David, we're getting some uh, wonderful texts in and I don't want to ambush you with all of them, but I, I don't know if, if some of these might uh, 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 spark, uh, spark a response. Noah has texted in uh, wondering whether we can separate his religious thought from his philosophical thought. Kieran uh, is wondering if it's true that he stole a lot of his philosophical ideas from Aristotle. And Claire is wondering whether you could argue that he's a feminist because he was keen to improve their legal standing. Well, those are very different questions. I, I think one thing, a basic idea that um, we need to understand with respect to Maimonides and indeed other philosophers, uh, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim, uh, they did not believe, as we do as moderns, that everyone should have the same education or that everyone was capable of the same intellect. Um, instead, Maimonides had a very hierarchical uh, vision of human beings. That is, they're the elect few who can understand philosophy. That's why the guide is written for only one student. Um, uh, the uh, uh, Mishnah Torah, the Code of Law, um, really is aimed at, a, at legal authorities. Um, and Maimonides generally thought that most people could not understand either of those two things. And therefore, um, he says, and this is a, a Talmudic saying, uh, the Bible speaks in the language of human beings. In other words, the language, human beings think of God as a personal God, and um, they believe in miracles and so forth and so on, uh, which no philosopher would subscribe to, or at least certainly not Maimonides. So this uh, view of society very different from a modern view, I think, uh, explains why Maimonides is writing for different audiences. Uh, and, that, and that, I think, accounts for the fact that his philosophy and his religious thought are not necessarily exactly the same thing. When I say religious thought, I mean his, his legal work. Um, now, uh, remind me of the other question. Uh, um, whether he was a feminist and whether he stole ideas from Aristotle. Oh, so, you know, I, I don't think that um, it's not so much that he stole ideas. He was influenced by Aristotle. Aristotle was sort of, it's, it's sort of like, you know, no modern physicist can ignore Einstein. Um, so in the Middle Ages, no philosopher could ignore Aristotle, and, and they had to deal with Aristotle, um, uh, struggle with his ideas and try to accommodate them or reconcile them uh, with uh, the teachings of Judaism, Islam, or Christianity. Um, so that's not really stealing. It's really a question of trying to um, accommodate that philosophy, which was seen really as definitive with uh, a religious way of uh, thinking. Um, was he a feminist? Um, no, I don't think. I think that would be a very anachronistic thing to say of Maimonides. Uh, there is a, a response on the question of whether uh, women can uh, act as uh, teachers. Um, and uh, he, I, if I remember correctly, he says yes. Now, that does not make him a feminist. Um, but he, uh, you know, I think that uh, his, his view was definitely that women are not capable of the same intellect as men. Okay, well, tonight we are debating the life, the work, and the legacy of Maimonides. Talking history. This, this, 
is News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the life, work, and legacy of Maimonides. And I'm delighted to be joined now on the phone by Professor Sarah Stroimsa, the Alice and Jack Ormond Professor Emerita of Arabic Studies at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and the author of Maimonides in His World Portrait of a Mediterranean Thinker. Uh, Sarah, you're very welcome. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Can we talk about. The, inf- the I suppose the the impact of the rich Mediterranean culture on Maimonides because he's usually interpreted in relation to Islamic philosophy in the Islamic worlds, but you argue that he should I suppose really be interpreted as a Mediterranean thinker. Yes, he he. It's not just the impact of this uh, society, the Islamic society or the Mediterranean society, on him as if they are two different objects. He is part of that culture. And the culture is not just the Islamic, the contemporary Islamic culture or the philosophical uh, uh, legacy. It's also um, the uh, legacy of previous layers of the Mediterranean cultures, including what he considered to be uh, the prehistory of uh, uh, the Mediterranean as it is in his days, the the pagan times. So this is all part of of his his world. Very good. And when we look at maybe key aspects of his thought, how would you how would you perhaps describe his vision of human perfection? Well, Maimonides was an elitist. Uh, Anna Bashad is el- elitist. He thought that uh, humans have uh, a body which is a servant and sometimes a rather despicable servant to the soul and that the soul has several layers only the upper layer of which is is the real perfection of the human being. So all his vision is pyramidal of the person and of society. There are the common people, there are the people who lead the common people, and then there are the, the few, the, the philosophers, who really manage to attain human perfection. Now, that it's not that he disregarded the needs of everyone else or the ability of everyone else to achieve some perfection. But you can say that he thinks of himself and of and of humanity as standing on their tiptoes trying to reach up to the highest level of human perfection. He seems to have learn things from the and and have had his ideas developed from the the various different encounters he had with Jews with Christians with Muslims but even as you show with with non-believers and people who would have been viewed as heretics yes indeed he was an avid reader uh, curiosity was uh, very basic to him also as a pedagogical uh, principle that he he didn't think elitist as he was he didn't think that curiosity is important only for people of his kind he thought that this was uh, an important um, character of humanity that they strive to learn and 
he he says that he re- reads that he read everything that he could uh hear of or uh find and i think that through these readings he there he had no censorship in his readings everything that he could find and he read in arabic and in hebrew he didn't read latin he didn't read uh, sumeric but everything that he could find in translation into arabic he read and this opened to him different cultures this opened to him things that were translated from syriac written by christians things that were translated from the uh the ancient near east also he believed this is everything everything he read was a window to a different culture and and i think you suggest that there was also an important but perhaps unacknowledged impact from is it the al mo al mohads yes uh he doesn't acknowledge it he he doesn't have anything good to say about him when he speaks about them explicitly he calls them the persecutors of the jewish people the worst persecutors uh, of the jewish people that ever existed he doesn't name them he calls them islam although he knows that there is other versions of islam and he doesn't speak about them he doesn't speak about them when he lives under in their territory because it's too dangerous and he doesn't speak explicitly about them when he leaves just by hints but nonetheless he grew up under their influence and he with again with his curiosity when he saw some something that uh, impressed him as correct or leading in the right way he ad- adopted them uh their vision of how you educate uh the common people to believe in pure monotheism and to stay away from idolatry is something that he has adopted their vision of how you propagate that vision by small compendia is also something that he adopted but he never quotes them and what about his views on science because he left behind uh, medical and scientific writings and i wonder how influential were they medical writings or scientific writings or the things that influenced him? I think his own writings and perhaps what insight we get into uh, his thoughts and his views and maybe how significant they were in terms of, of the period. At the time, his contemporaries um, spoke very highly of his, his abilities as um, a phys- physician. Uh, one of his contemporaries in Cairo says that uh, uh, Galen could cure, was able to cure uh, only the body, and Maimonides was able to cure body and soul, and th- that he would be even able to cure the moon when it wanes. But this this kind of panegyric, uh, people appreciated him as a physician. He left uh, practical advices. I don't think there is a fashion today to go back and read what he wrote. But I think, obviously, uh, this is the uh, uh, medicine of his time. And he is not primarily uh, a scientist, but his thought uh, strives to be uh, tuned 
advanced science of the day. So, uh, for example, if uh, someone would say in his time that you need to be vaccinated, he would rush forward and say, yes, you need to be vaccinated. He tried very much to uh, adopt the scientific way of, of thinking. Uh, and he, he, he says that uh, the truth must follow uh, the facts, not the facts uh, follow the doctrine. So his way of thinking is something that I think uh, is also holds true for scientists today. And finally, Sarah, what would you see as his great legacy? Uh, the attempt, I think the great legacy is the attempt to uh, lead a rational way of life with uh, religious beliefs, with the needs of the community, with the needs of different uh, people coming from different uh, walks of life, to be guided by a rational and compassionate way of thinking. Very good. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us tonight to talk to us about the life and the legacy of Maimonides. Uh, Sarah is the author of Maimonides in his world, Portrait of a Mediterranean Thinking. Professor Sarah Stramsa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, that is indeed Sarah Strauss. And now we're getting some lovely texts in. Tom and Wicklow uh, wondering about his thoughts on curing the body and the soul. Uh, uh, also uh, questions about his uh, Maimonides' childhood in Muslim Spain, his family's flight to North Africa to escape persecution and so on. So I think we'll take another quick break now. When we come back, I'll be speaking to Dr. Mashi Halbertel, who is the author of Maimonides' Life and Thought. And I'll put some of these questions to him. So keep your texts coming in 53106 and we'll be right back after this. Talking History History. on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we debate the life, work and legacy of Maimonides. And I'm delighted to be joined by an internationally acclaimed expert on Maimonides now. Dr. Moshe Halbertal is Professor of Jewish Thought and Philosophy at Hebrew University of Jerusalem and is also Groose Professor of Law at NYU. And his books include Maimonides, Life and Thought. And I wonder, could I begin by just a broader question about uh, what makes Maimonides... Uh, such a great philosopher and why he's considered the greatest Jewish philosopher and scholar of the medieval age? Well, he he was a combination of uh, two great achievements. First, he was uh, one of the greatest Talmudists, one of the greatest uh, figures in Jewish history who dealt with Jewish law and he did something unprecedented of a code, of a comprehensive, accessible magnificent code of all of Jewish law altogether framed within the larger philosophical ethos that he has. So that's one achievement. And it's, um, if, if just for that, Maimonides will be one of the towering figures of Jewish history. Besides that, he wrote The Guide of the Perplexed, which is um, an attempt uh, by Maimonides to struggle with the major, major philosophical, theological questions of his age. And there you see his theological, philosophical boldness. So I think the combination of these two achievements make him such a towering figure. 
and your study won many awards and uh, I was reading some of the praise for the book and it described Maimonides as a, as a rabbi scientist and uh, praised oh, yeah. him for developing this idea of, of a faith being an enterprise based on reason. Right, right. So one very important thing is that Maimonides never saw a tension or between revelation and reason, faith and reason. He thought that the and that's something very deep in Maimonides. He thought that the most important encounter with God is not the breaking of natural phenomena such as a miracle, right? And many, many believers have this deep religious intuition or instinct that God is apparent in the world when nature breaks, when God intervenes through a miraculous act of will. Now, Maimonides thought actually almost the reverse, that the main, main, main uh, manifestation of God's presence is through natural law itself. It's the expression of what he calls wisdom rather than will. If you want to encounter the, the divinity, if you want to encounter the splendor of God's presence and infinity is through causal order as such, uh, so, so this is why the study of nature and science is not in tension with religion in the way it's portrayed today, science and religion. It's actually the other way around. It's uh, science, as you go deeper into the, the scientific world, into the order of nature, you discover its wisdom, you discover its, its divinity. So, um, so that's where is not a rabbi and a scientist. He's not someone who brought harmony between faith and reason. He actually he was more radical than that. He saw reason as the main as the main tool or the main guide to faith through our introspection, our understanding of the natural world. And that's something very deep in him. Some very powerful connections uh with with Islam as well throughout his oh. life and career from growing sure. up in Muslim Spain, the family fleeing to North Africa, um, and, and and a lot of the the Islamic world influence uh, that you see in his in his writings and his ideas. Yes, yes, that's very important. First, uh, the Guide of the Perplexed, written in Judeo Arabic, meaning in Arabic and Hebrew letters, and and very much part of the large transformation of, of Islamic religion led by figures like Ibn Sina, Al-Farabi, Ibn Rushd, uh, uh, who brought basically the Greek world into into the medieval world for the Arabic translations. And so Maimonides is, uh, is, um, is developing his point of view through an encounter with Islamic philosophy. And Maimonides says, you know, you should listen to truth for, from wherever it comes, right? When you come, truth is not tribal. It's not, it, it doesn't, it, 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 it transcends borders, borders of, of religious affiliation. So, um, yes, so he, on the one hand, is clearly within the large movement of Islamic philosophy. On the other hand, is some of his Life is uh, is shaped by by Islamic persecution as well. So um, he's born in Andalusia when when the golden age of 
of, of, of Andalusia is being shattered by the emergence of radical Islamic forces coming from Morocco today. So he becomes a refugee, moves for North Africa, till the family settles in, in, in Cairo. So he lives, uh, his relationship to the Islamic world is complex on the one hand under his kind of deep cultural affinity and and relations, on the other hand, a very, very fragile and vulnerable historical existence. How would you assess his legacy? Is it in the area of mm. Jewish intellectual history? Is it broader than that in terms of the scholarship and the understanding of, of Islam and, I suppose, his wider contribution to philosophy? Well, there is clearly a wider contribution to philosophy, among other things, his entry to Christian thought through Aquinas and others who read him very carefully. Uh, and uh, uh, and he had an impact on that world. Uh, he also was read by Muslims. Um, and clearly, in terms of Jewish life, he shaped an alternative. He shaped a religious alternative um, that puts it at the forefront um, and a certain idea of religion. That is that is counter. That is a, a deeper formation in some ways of of the traditional way. So Maimonides shaped uh, an alternative for those who view um, reason as a as a guide, reason as a as a as the, the ultimate expression of worship, rather than intention with worship. And also he uh, as a as a meticulous. Um, legal theorist and, and expert, he created a, a code that became central to all further developments in Jewish law. So, uh, uh, which actually granted his philosophy great authority. But here, he wasn't just a mere thinker; he was a, the greatest legal mind, maybe of medieval Jewry. So he's shaping he's shaping Jewish life in all in in all those directions. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you tonight, Dr. Moshe Halbertal, who is an internationally acclaimed expert of on Maimonides and Professor of Jewish Thought and Philosophy at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, as well as Professor of Law at NYU. Uh, Moshe, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, thank you. And that does bring us to the end of tonight's show. Some wonderful uh, texts coming in from our listeners. And, you know, Mary reminds us about how uh, he had, Maimonides had strong ideals about educating the masses and underrated aspects of his life, especially for the time. Thanks, Mary and Galway. Thanks to my brilliant panel, uh, Dr. Moshe Halbertal, who we just heard from, Professor Sarah Stramsa. Also, my brilliant panel earlier, uh, uh, Dr. David Beale, uh, Dr. George Yakov Kohler, uh, Professor Robert Eisen and uh, uh, Dr. Mark, Professor Mark Shapiro. Well, that does bring us to the end of tonight's show.